we need to be thinking about hormones not just for perimenopause and menopause. We obviously need to be thinking about PMS, PMDD, postnatal depression. And it's so easy to go, oh, it's just your hormones. Well, actually, if it's affecting you as a person, what can we do about it? Why aren't we stabilizing these hormones? Why aren't we thinking about how important they are? And with mental health, most women we see in the clinic have already been offered or given antidepressants. Well, it's putting the sticking plaster on it, isn't it? It's not treating the underlying cause. Hello to all the amazing Heart to Healing listeners. I can't believe we've already come to the end of season three. I've absolutely loved all of your wonderful comments about the episodes. And just to know that it's been a real comfort for some of you going through your own struggles has felt incredibly rewarding. I feel like we've already got such a brilliant and inspiring community, and I really can't wait for that to expand every season. So summer has begun, and I know it's usually a time to rest, reset, and enjoy yourselves. But I'd love to share a few more bonus episodes with you that I've recorded, which are too good to wait until the next season. So welcome to the Summer Specials. On today's Summer Special, I'm joined by Dr. Louise Newson, a GP and renowned menopause specialist, author, podcast host, and the founder of The Balance App. Louise is passionate about improving education about the perimenopause and the menopause, and improving the awareness of safe prescribing of HRT to healthcare professionals. Women are increasingly discussing the forgetfulness, anxiety, and suicidal thoughts they have experienced as their hormones change in midlife. It's true that the link between the menopause and depression is now sufficiently recognised and the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence now recommends HRT as the first line of treatment for low mood or anxiety in menopausal women. Today, I speak to Louise all about mental health and emotional well-being in the perimenopause and menopause, particularly the psychological symptoms, and ask her about how we can support our mental health during these changes. Can you start by explaining to listeners who might not know what perimenopause is and what the difference between the perimenopause and the menopause is? Yeah, it's a great question. If I answer the the sort of menopause bit first, if that's okay. So if you look at the word menopause and break it down, all it means is that our menstrual cycle, so our periods stop. But officially, you have to have stopped your periods for a year before you can wear that menopause badge, which sounds quite simplistic but actually a lot of women don't have periods or they might use contraception or they might have had a hysterectomy so then how do they know if they're menopausal so what we need to do is think about what happens with the menopause what happens is is for most of us our ovaries just don't work so well because we're older and we don't have eggs in the same way that we had when we were younger so the hormones associated with egg production reduce so it's about our hormones declining perimenopause means peri bit just means around the time of so it's something that's happening to us around the time of the menopause and what happens is our hormones don't just switch off overnight unless of course we've had our ovaries removed in an operation but otherwise what happens is they decline but they decline in quite a chaotic way so it means some women have high levels some women have low so you have these highs and lows of estrogen gradually going down but that can cause all sorts of symptoms So in the perimenopause, women, if they're having periods, find their periods change in nature or frequency. They might become lighter, periods further apart, or their periods might become heavier and closer together. But there's this chaos of hormones that's happening in our bodies, which often trigger menopausal symptoms. So when you read about menopausal symptoms, they're actually the same as perimenopausal symptoms. And it's just that our body's responding to not having the hormones in this stable way or having low levels of hormones. And the perimenopause can last for around 10 years before the menopause. 
the average age of the menopause in the UK is 51. So it means that most women in their 40s will actually be perimenopausal. But we also know that around 3%, probably even more, of women under the age of 40 have an early menopause. So that means quite a few women in their 20s and 30s will be perimenopausal. And it can cause all sorts of symptoms because we have cells that respond to our hormones everywhere in our body. So from our brains, to our mouths, to our lungs, to our kidneys, to our heart, to our bones, to our skin, to our hair. So not everyone gets every symptom. Some people get one or two symptoms and then the next day might get other symptoms and symptoms can change a lot as well. And a lot of women find that the perimenopause is actually a worse time than the menopause because this chaos of hormones that occurs can just trigger chaos in our bodies and lots of symptoms. Do you think it's governed more by environmental or genetic factors when you start going through the menopause? Yeah, it might be, but it's really hard to know because there's no, well, for most of us, we don't have identical twins, so we don't know what it would have been like otherwise. There are some people who have an earlier menopause that runs in families. So a lot of patients I see who've had an early menopause in their 30s, for example, tell me that their mother and their sister and their granny all had an earlier menopause. So it can run in families. We know that some lifestyles can make symptoms worse. So for example, eating spicy foods, drinking hot drinks, when you're having hot flushes can make things worse. We all know that if we eat a rubbish diet or we don't exercise, we're going to feel worse. It will affect our mental health and physical health. So of course, that might make menopausal symptoms worse. But it's more than just blaming women for their lifestyle not being great, actually. I think we need to be looking at our hormones are biologically active hormones. They have really important roles in our body. Whether women have symptoms or not, when they're menopausal, they have health risks. So without the hormones, we have an increased risk of heart disease, osteoporosis, diabetes, dementia. We know that for many years. So we need to be thinking about what can we do to get our hormones back? Why is this happening? Now, how can we reduce our risk of diseases going forwards? Because once we're menopausal, we're always menopausal. It's not just a few years of symptoms and then we, if we come out the other side, we're always going to have low hormones with these health risks that we need to be addressing and thinking about them. And something I think that you alluded to is, is the myriad ways in which hormones just affect everything in the body and all these biological functions, which I think, I mean, certainly my education didn't really touch on. I, I was always just led to believe that hormones were responsible for your ovarian function and your menstruation (laughs) and it's only recently having gone on the sort of journey of a bit of self-healing and self-discovery that actually you realize hormones just lay the foundation for everything in your body and it's your neurotransmitters as well so without hormones we just don't function as proper human beings really yeah you're absolutely right and I mean I've got a pathology degree as well so I'm very interested in basic science I'm very interested in of course the way our bodies work which are amazing But you're absolutely right. If you look at our brain and you look at neurotransmitters, so chemicals that affect the way our brains work, we've got lots of them. But also estrogen, progesterone and testosterone are neurotransmitters. But they also help the metabolism of our brain. So they help blood flow. They help improve the glucose metabolism in our brain. They work as anti-inflammatories as well. So they reduce inflammation in our brain as well. And we've got receptors for estrogen and testosterone all over our brain. So in areas that affect our mood, areas that affect our memory, areas that affect our coordination as well. So a lot of people find that they stumble or fall over more. But we need to be thinking about hormones, not just for perimenopause and menopause. We obviously need to be thinking about PMS, PMDD, postnatal depression. You know, I've got three 
daughters, of course, they have lots of hormonal changes. And it's so easy to go, oh, it's just your hormones. Well, actually, if it's affecting you as a person, what can we do about it? Why aren't we stabilizing these hormones? Why aren't we thinking about how important they are? And as you say, with mental health, most women we see in the clinic have already been offered or given antidepressants. Well, it's putting the sticking plaster on it, isn't it? It's not treating the underlying cause. Exactly. And so I have heard a few stories about women who have got no previous history of mental health issues and and that sometimes can be sparked by the perimenopause. Why can the perimenopause significantly impact on mental well-being? Yeah, it's because our hormones are really important for our brain and whether there's a genetic component as well or something else, because some women are fine, they don't have any mental health issues at all. But I've seen a lot of women who have really struggled with their mental health. And when we look at Balance app, you know, the free app that we've got monitoring symptoms, commonest symptoms are ones affecting the brain. So anxiety, low mood, memory problems. And there's no surprise when we know how our hormones affect our brain, but a lot of people find that they feel very flat, they feel very low, they feel very joyless, they feel tearful, they're not enjoying life the way that they were before. A lot of people have been misdiagnosed with depression. We see a lot of women who have been given antidepressants, antipsychotics, some of them have had ECT, even electroconvulsive therapy. We've seen a few more recently who have been given ketamine infusions by other doctors to try and improve the way their brain works. But it's not until you give them hormones, then they go, wow, I think again, I'm back to normal. But we've thought so long about the menopause being something just affecting our periods, or just affecting our fertility. We seem to forget, as healthcare professionals, that our hormones go into our bloodstream. They go all around our body, especially to our brains. And we've known for many years, I mean, look at the word hysteria and the word hysterectomy. You know, there were lots of women were locked up in asylums with hysteria. And it was all thought because of their wandering womb or there was something weird going on with these women or they were just hysterical and making it up. Of course they weren't. It, a lot of it would have been related to their hormones and misdiagnosed, but it's still going on now. There's a lot of medical gaslighting going on. There's lots of women who are not believed or not listened to in the right way. Something else that I've shared with our listeners is that I've I started HRT because from suffering with anorexia for many years, my hormonal function just basically went to bed. And I think it's something that, again, hasn't really been discussed openly because it's just usually the default reaction of GPs is to give you the pill if you don't have your period. And actually, I've noticed like a huge change, as you say, in my mood, in my ability to concentrate, in my energy levels, just all sorts of stuff that I wouldn't have dreamt of in my 20s. And actually, I think it needs to be something that is is explored more because it, it has a huge effect and it is there and it is available. But I think just not enough people really know about it. Yeah, absolutely right. We see lots of people who've had eating disorders when they're younger. And you know, for lots of people, it's lovely not having your periods. Like, it's the best thing ever. Who wants your periods, really? So, you know, I think that's the only advantage is the menopause. So if people are young, and I've seen and spoken to a lot of athletes who love not having periods, you know, they want to perform well, they don't want to be fooled by their periods. And some of them have eating disorders as well, or some of them it's just because they exercise so much, their body switches off. And our bodies are clever, of course. So your body doesn't want to become pregnant if you're underweight or exercising too much or under too much stress or you've got another illness or whatever so switching off your ovaries means you won't get pregnant but as you're rightly say it switches off your hormones as well 
And then a lot of people go, well, of course she's going to feel like that because she's got an eating disorder or because she's whatever. But actually, she's feeling like that because she's got no hormones in her body. And it's not just estrogen, it's often testosterone as well can make a huge difference to the way people feel. And I've seen a lot of women and it's not until we've rebalanced their hormones and given them the right amount for them and the right dose for them. And a lot of women don't absorb well or need higher doses because they're younger. And then you give them a physiological dose back so they've got a physiological response in their body. And then they go, wow, this is amazing. And you can take HRT without having your periods back. So it's a double win, really. So I was looking at figures that show instances of women taking their own lives does increase between the ages of 45 and 54. And I just wonder whether you think this could be linked to the menopause. I absolutely do. There's about seven times increased risk. And if you look even um, at the diagnosis of depression, there's this increased spike. Also, antidepressants prescribing increases. And we've known for many years there's this increase, and it seems to be more in the perimenopause when these hormones are all over the place because it's more in the late 40s. I had not realized the enormity of the problem until I opened my clinic, and we see thousands of women a month through the clinic, and most days we see women who are sadly suicidal. And we see, obviously, a skewed population, but these women have already been under psychiatrists. They've already been under crisis teams. They've had all these medications and haven't improved. And then we often then give them HRT because they've got other symptoms. And then they go, wow, I feel the best I've felt for ages. And we've done a lot of training with psychiatrists, psychologists, mental health workers, and a lot of them are not given any formal education about the menopause. So women aren't being asked and they're not being offered HRT. And We've been involved in a couple of inquests of women who have sadly taken their own lives. And the inquest results have shown that they haven't been given adequate menopause care and treatment. It's impossible to say whether those lives will be saved, but there's a lot of women, and I've seen so many women, the stories that I've heard are horrendous, actually. And these women aren't making it up because when you give them HRT, they're expecting their flushes to improve or maybe their sleep to improve but they're not expecting to be able to come off the medication they've been given and feel so much better. You know, and I've seen people who have suffered for many years and it's awful, actually. The mental health component of the menopause is just underestimated. I think it's the biggest priority that we need to do because people are scared about HRT. They all think about this breast cancer risk, which we know for most types there's not good evidence to show it. But your risk of death from suicide, as you know, is is 100%. Your risk of death if you've been diagnosed of, of breast cancer is actually not high at all because treatment's so good, most people live very long lives. And this is where we shouldn't be just ignoring women and putting it down to other things. I spoke to a lady recently who had been sectioned. She was married to a GP. And they kept saying, well, what else in your life? There must be something else for you to be like this. And she said, there isn't anything. She's 45. It was only when she threw herself off her third-story building and something cushioned her fall, so she only fractured her pelvis and her spine and didn't kill herself. She still kept asking for HRT, and they said, no, we can't give it to you. Now you've got these fractures. There's an increased risk of clot. Well, there isn't with most types of HRT. Her husband, who was a GP, finally was so scared she was going to come out of hospital and kill herself or try and kill herself. He said, I'm going to give you some HRT because I don't know what else to do. And I've read that it might be associated with uh, depression. 
And then a few days after starting it, she's like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. Why didn't anyone do this before? And him as a GP thought, why haven't I had this as part of my training? You know, it's awful actually. And I'm not here saying that every case of depression is due to hormones. Of course I'm not. But we also know, which I think is very interesting, that antidepressants work better in women who've got estrogen in their blood, in their body. So whether it's because people are young and having their periods and producing their own estrogen or they're on HRT, doesn't really matter. So we need to be thinking if someone needs antidepressants, well, have they got estrogen on board because it will potentiate the effect of the antidepressant as well. Yeah, thank you for sharing that because I think what happens with a lot of women is that you go to a GP with depression and as you say, the GPs don't really know enough about HRT to be able to prescribe HRT. So the default reaction is to prescribe antidepressants so I should imagine that actually quite a lot of women who probably come through your clinic are on antidepressants who actually might not need to be and do you work with them to try and wean them off the antidepressants or do you tend to keep them on it? Yeah no it's really interesting it used to be around 70% of women we saw had been offered or given antidepressants it's slightly lower but it's still around half people I always say to women when I give women HRT I have no idea how much your HRT is going to improve you. I do know there are more benefits and risks for most women taking HRT, and I do know that it reduces risk of diseases like which is heart disease and osteoporosis. What I can't do is tell you how many of your symptoms are directly due to your hormones because there's no way of knowing. And so I would never change antidepressants as soon as I saw that person, but it's on their review appointments where we balance their hormones properly, giving them the right dose for them. And I go with the patient. Some women still need to take their medication. Other women say, I just don't need to be on this dose or this type. And we work closely with the psychiatrist if they're under a psychiatrist or their GP or their mental health team. You know, I feel very strongly women should be in control, especially if they're consenting adults of a good sound mind. They often know themselves. But as you know, you wouldn't ever recommend to stop antidepressants overnight. It's usually a gradual withdrawal. And some women I've seen have been on antidepressants for many, many years. So it can take, you know, a year or so sometimes to come off antidepressants. We just usually, I used to do it in general practice a lot, just gradually, gradually reduce the dose. And then you can see how people are. But it often there's a lot of people who we can reduce and stop antidepressants. We also reduce painkillers, reduce sleeping tablets, you know, reduce blood pressure treatment. It's great actually as a doctor to be able to reduce prescribing rather than just add more and more prescriptions to people as they get older. Yeah, well, and it's brilliant that doctors like you exist because I think we have sadly fallen victim of being a society which does over-prescribe medication and we sort of te- do tend to over-pathologize as opposed to under-pathologize, which it's helpful in some instances, but actually is unhelpful in other instances. And I think you can sometimes overlook the core issue if you do overprescribe, because as you say, it sort of masks so many different things. Actually, for someone like you to really get to the crux of, of the issue that a patient might be suffering from takes a while. Yeah, and it's really hard because there's no diagnostic test for the perimenopause or menopause, although despite what's being sold, you can't buy a blood test or a saliva test or a urine test to diagnose. But that's the same with most mental health conditions. You make the diagnosis on the history and the story from the person. You can't do a blood test for depression or bipolar or schizophrenia or a psychosis. And so then as a doctor, it can be quite difficult to know, well, what's going on? What is it? Is this a mental health disorder? Is it not? And actually, you know, as a GP, I've had quite a lot of psychiatric training, you know. So I 
can tease out and often recognize this pattern recognition. But actually, asking women is, is often really important because a lot of women say, oh, yeah, no, I felt like this before. I used to feel like this for two days before my periods, but now it's for 10 days or now it's for most of the time, but it's that same feeling that I get. And I spoke to someone recently who told me that she had taken her dog lead into the woods and she was going to hang herself. And she only didn't do it because she could hear her children playing in the background. And then I said to her, well, do you always feel this bad? She goes, oh, no, 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 it's only a day or two. And then my period comes and I feel fine again. And I said, oh, but you've seen a crisis team, you're under psychiatrists, your sister actually contacted me because she was worried about you, quite rightly so. I said, did anyone talk to you about how your mood changes throughout your month? Oh, no, they've just given me all these drugs and I know I'm not depressed, but I don't know what else to do. So, you know, my 12-year-old could realise it was related to hormones. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah, um, staggering. Sometimes not difficult, but we've got to involve patients and ask them as well. It's really important. This episode of Hurt to Healing is sponsored by our friends at The And Partnership. The And Partnership is a global communications business working with clients like Toyota, Mars, Coca-Cola and NatWest, as well as charities like The Princess Trust and RNIB. They believe that by bringing diverse talent together in partnership, they can transform the way that great brands are built. They call it the power of and. On the Hurt to Healing podcast, we know that having honest conversations about mental health can help us to see different points of view and to better understand ourselves. Just like the and partnership's belief in the power of and, we believe that by coming together to share our stories, we make ourselves and each other stronger. To find out more about the work the AND Partnership creates, visit theandpartnership.com. That's T H E A N D partnership.com. And a massive thank you to the AND Partnership for supporting my mission and showing what we can achieve when we come together. Do you think with women having children that much later now and Obviously, postnatal depression is something that is spoken about and our awareness of it has increased in the last, I'd say, decade. And do you think that there's a link between postnatal depression and the menopause? Yeah, absolutely. So people talk about reproductive depression, which is about 15%. I think it's probably actually higher. So those people who have PMS, have postnatal depression, often have a worse time during the perimenopause and menopause. And it's those women, like I said at the beginning, whose brains are more sensitive to changing hormone levels. If you look at the levels of especially estrogen, but also progesterone when people are pregnant, it's thousands, it's really, really high. And often people feel quite good when they're pregnant. Then suddenly they have a baby and their levels just drop. You see the graph, it just plummets. And we're all told, aren't we, when we have a baby, oh, we'll have some baby blues, we'll feel a bit low, we might get some night sweats, we might get some vaginal dryness. And um, I had that with all three of my children. Didn't even think for a minute, what about my hormones? Why didn't someone just give me a little bit of estrogen just to top it up so I could just function a bit better? You're just like, no, this is how you're supposed to feel. Well, why are we supposed to feel rubbish, you know? I just had it mildly, but those people with severe postnatal depression and we've got to remember postnatal depression is actually one of the commonest causes of suicide in adult women then why are women not being offered hormones why are they being sectioned why are they being given other drugs and you know we've got clinical evidence from even in the 60s that people responded to hormones john studd did some amazing work but everyone's ignoring it 
in medicine, why don't we treat the underlying cause? And you know, I keep saying to psychiatrists, can't you give hormones as well as with these other drugs? I don't think women would refuse hormones. What are we worried about? When women are young and have hormones, there's no increased risk of clot because they're through the skin. There's no increased risk of breast cancer. We're just topping them up. It's you know, really low dose. And I don't quite understand why we there's this big resistance. So would you say to your patients that HRT is crucial to having a happy menopause? Yes, I would in a, in a simple way because, you know, our hormones are biologically active and we don't have them when we're menopausal. Some women choose to not take HRT, don't want to take it. It's absolutely fine. I'm not here saying everyone has to take HRT. But what I really strongly feel is that 100% of women who want to take HRT should be able to have it and that's not happening in the UK or worldwide. I think we also need to remember that taking HRT is an individualised choice and it's a choice that people can change their mind of. You know, I can rip my patches off today and and not take them anymore. It's up to me. I can decide. And for a lot of women, they don't think they've got symptoms and it's not until they take HRT and they go, wow, life's just so much easier. I can dance around the kitchen and laugh at music and I can enjoy being with my children or going out for a drink with my friends. I just thought it was because I wasn't happily married or I didn't enjoy my job that I've been feeling really miserable. It's a very small thing, but actually as a doctor, part of my job is to make people feel better. HRT does make people feel better for a lot of the time, but also we know it's got health benefits and actually my other job as a doctor is to reduce disease. So it sort of ticks lots of boxes, yet... In the UK, about 14% of menopausal women take HRT. In areas of deprivation, it's as low as 2%. Why do we have an evidence-based treatment that women are being denied? I'd love someone to answer that question because I can't understand why it's happening. It is very interesting. And as you said, there is a shortage at the moment. I mean, I know that there are hordes of women who are desperate to get hold of HRT and they just can't get it to the pharmacies and, and distribute it. Why is that? Well, lots of it is increased demand, so I do feel a bit guilty because of some of the niche work that I've been doing. But we have been warning people, the drug companies, I was, just for transparency, I do no paid work with farming at all. But we have been saying, look, the numbers are going to increase. But before the WHI study, which was the study that scared everyone away from HRT 20 years ago, about 30% of menopausal women were taking HRT. So it's half that. So even if we go back to how it was 20 years ago, we've got a long way to go. We've gone from about 10% to 14%. We've got all these shortages. They kept talking about, oh, there's just a spike, like the whole COVID spike. Of course, it's not a spike. It's going to exponentially increase. The problem is there's only one manufacturer that make the Utrogest and the body identical progesterone. They've been quite small. HRT is very cheap. We haven't got big pharma behind us funding, or if it was a big cancer medicine that was very expensive, of course, you'd have lots of drug companies involved and it's just women why would you worry about women you know there's all there's so much that's going on <laughs> but and then there's still even now you only need to look at my social media people are really anti-hormones they're anti-mean they're anti the work that's going on and I just think well let's look at the science and let's listen to women it's not difficult but it's been made to be really difficult and everything in women's house you just need to look at endometriosis or reduce fertility or anything to women just is really hard and I, I don't quite understand why. Will you just explain to us how oestrogen plays such a crucial role in the brain and in people's mental health? 
So on all our cells, everywhere in our body, we've got receptors for different hormones, different substances, and that's how it works. We have a chemical that touches to that receptor. It then makes that cell function better. So we've got receptors for estrogen and testosterone and progesterone in our brains, all over our brains. And they have functions to improve the way the cells work. But like we said at the start, they also work as neurotransmitters, which means that their hormones can tell one cell from, to another cell what to do and how to work. And in the brain, these transmitted uh, signals really are called neuro, as in nerve transmitted, they're just transmitted signal. So estrogen and testosterone are neurotransmitters, but they also improve the way our brain functions and works. So for many women, it's very crucial to have those hormones to work properly. In the same way, you know, if you went and ate a bar of chocolate, you might feel great for a like a millisecond when you get this boost of sugar in your body, including your brain, and then you feel rubbish afterwards, or you might have a, I don't know, a takeaway that really just makes you feel very sluggish and slow. And a lot of that is related to all the chemicals in the brain and the way that it affects us. Same with hormones. We don't have the right balance of hormones. You know, you can do all the all the right things that you, you want to or have the best lifestyle, but it's still not be able to function in the same way. It's like putting unleaded petrol in your leaded petrol car. You know, just not going to do it. And we have to remember that everyone thinks HRT is different to hormones. You know, if hormones were really dangerous, young people who were having periods would be really unhealthy. They're not. Young women are healthy and we're designed to have hormones. And our hormones, estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, are no different to our other hormones like insulin or thyroxine. They're just chemical messengers. And also estrogen and testosterone can affect the way our serotonin levels work. And I'm sure you you and a lot of your listeners have heard of serotonin, our happy hormone. It can also interfere and change the amount of dopamine we have, our reward hormone but they also interfere with our stress hormones, so adrenaline and cortisol. All our hormones are very clever. They all work together. And also, we also know that women who are on some types of antidepressants, especially antipsychotics like quetiapine, it can raise prolactin, which is another hormone, which then suppresses sex hormones. So it's giving people less chemical menopause. So there are some women who would, wouldn't be menopausal otherwise. Then they're on these drugs for their psychiatric condition and that's affecting the way that their hormones work yeah and I think that's certainly something that a lot of people experience being on antidepressants is just a complete quashing of your libido and in turn for women that's something that I've experienced and it can be you know it's not just about sort of your sex drive it's actually about how you feel about yourself your confidence whether you feel that innate self-love and it again that in turn has a knock-on effect on our mental health so I think it's so important, as you say, to look at this holistic picture and to really evaluate what really is going on. Absolutely. And I'm very interested in testosterone, which is, I didn't realise 10 years ago, actually, that women even have testosterone in their bodies and we produce more testosterone and estrogen when we're younger. And testosterone deficiency, I think, is more of a thing than people realise, especially in younger people as well, because the levels just decline with age. So they don't fall off a cliff during the menopause which means there'll be quite a few women in their 20s and 30s which will have lower testosterone than they had when they were younger. And testosterone, we know, can improve libido, but it also can help with mood, energy, concentration, stamina. And we know that people on the contraceptive pill, the oral contraceptive pill, 
it increases something called your sex hormone binding globulin, which reduces your freely available testosterone. So antidepressants, we don't know because no one's done studies, but I'm sure they affect testosterone in the body as well. So a lot of the side effects from an antidepressant are probably related to reduced testosterone as well. And so we find that a lot of people, their mood really improves with testosterone and we're only giving back what's missing. It's a really low dose. So we don't have patients with beards and hairy arms coming yeah. in. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if I had a choice of taking testosterone or an antidepressant, every time I would try testosterone first because it's natural. It has less side effects. Of course, we don't know the long-term risks of being an antidepressant for 20, 30 years, but having a bit of your own hormone back, how's that going to be so dangerous? Well, no, and I'm in agreement. And in the I take bilinguals drops and, and in that there is testosterone as well. And yeah, it's not like I've morphed into a sort of hairy man in the process of taking them, unless I've got a serious sort of dysmorphia, in which case, yeah, I apologize. But no, I don't think that's the case. I am curious, when you put younger people, as you referred to, young athletes, girls who have maybe have distorted hormones due to eating disorders on HRT, do you expect them to come off it or do you just keep them on it indefinitely? Does the body relearn how to make the hormones or? Depends on the cause, to be honest. So there are some people who might have a transient menopause, for example. So people maybe with an eating disorder with a really low BMI body mass mass index might find that once they're on HRT and their mental health improves, with better mental health, often, as you know, an eating disorder is often related to the way you're thinking. So if you feel better about everything, often then their weight will increase and then they might find that their periods come back. And we've had quite a few people who have become pregnant actually in the clinic who've had an early menopause. We've given them HRT and then because of the HRT is really low dose, what it often does is it kickstarts the ovaries to work again because the ovaries aren't slogging you know, their guts out really trying to get any squeeze any bit of hormone, relaxes them a bit more almost. And so then they find that it's easier then to become pregnant or their periods return. And so some people you can actually reduce their HRT and they can even come off it if they're young. And then you'll find that obviously when they're older, they'll go through natural menopause and they'll, they'll but they'll often know the signs to look out for as well. So yeah, and that's why it's really important that women who are menopausal or perimenopausal or have individualized advice and are reviewed constantly so there's always a change in the dose and the type of hrt because what happens normally is we never don't normally have the same amount of hormone every single minute of every single day of course we don't and so all we're trying to do is to replicate and when we say hormone replacement it's more like hormone support treatment we're just topping up what's missing i'm curious as to what your views of egg freezing are do you think it can have a positive effect on women's mental health yeah, I think for people with fertility issues and egg freezing is definitely really important. There's been a lot by certain clinics and research about freezing bits of ovarian tissue to delay the menopause. And yes, I think that's great if firstly you can afford it and secondly it's going to be really put out to everybody. As a menopausal woman myself, I don't really care where the hormones come from. I just want hormones so I can function. And the body identical hormones that I take are same structure as the hormones I took when I was younger. I'm not that bothered about my ovarian tissue. I'm just happy to have hormones. A lot of work that I try and do is thinking about areas of deprivation, people who really can't access proper help. Now, I cannot see a time, certainly in my lifestyle, where giving some ovarian tissue is going to be widespread. 
Whereas having a bit of estrogen gel or patch with some tablet progesterone that costs four quid a month should be available to everybody. So I'm very keen looking at the menopause as a global health problem, looking at, you know, no inequality and not looking just at those people that can afford it. So sometimes in medicine, it's exciting looking at new techniques, but actually looking at the well-established basic science that's cheap as chips will actually help the bigger population. And just to conclude, what are some of the biggest myths surrounding the menopause, in your opinion? One of the biggest myths is that it's an old person's problem, which it isn't. It can affect anyone from any age. My youngest patient was 10 when she just didn't develop properly physically and she didn't get periods. So she was 14 when she was menopausal. So no one's too young. And that people have to just battle through it or endure it or that it's just a transition process. Actually, for most people, it's something that will cause symptoms and there are health risks with it as well. So I think it's really important that we're not just talking about it, but we're actually deciding what to do. And the other thing is, however we manage our menopause, it has to be a very individualised decision, which we can change our mind about as well. So HRT is one part of treatment. One of the other ways I manage my menopause is by exercising well and eating well. And I don't do caffeine, I don't do alcohol, very personal choice, and I don't smoke. But they are all ways of improving my mental health, my physical health, my bone and heart health. And I've chosen that. Other people might want to do none of those things, but they have to know that if they are smoking, there's an increased risk of osteoporosis and heart disease and dementia. But they need to know that. So it's about having the right knowledge and realizing that actually we need to invest in our time now to try and have the best menopause that we can. Nothing's going to be plain sailing, but we need to do it from within can't expect others to just do it for us well louise it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and you're just yeah such a fountain of knowledge and information and thank you for all the incredible work that you do through your clinic and your podcast and everything it's really incredible and i, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak today because i know how incredibly busy you are oh no it's been great thank you ever so much and i look forward to hearing if this helps others because that's what it's all about so thank you Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hurt to Healing podcast. I'd love for you to subscribe to the show or to follow me on our Hurt to Healing Instagram at Hurt to Healing Pod. You might also have a friend or family member that you think might benefit from hearing this conversation. So please spread the word.